Welcome to the Liberty Block. I'm Elliot Axelman. We are joined by a great candidate today, Mr. Julian Aciard, who is running for Congress for CD1 in New Hampshire. Julian, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Now, CD1 in New Hampshire is going to be redistricted uh, sometime soon in the next few months or year, maybe, so we don't know exactly what it's going to be. It's probably going to be the eastern half of the state, but um, we're hopeful that we could win at least one of those two congressional seats because right now they're all held by Democrats. So where do you live? Which town do you live in, Julian? I live in Derry. Great, Derry. So Derry most likely is, is going to be in, in CD1. Um, oh, hopefully, otherwise you couldn't run. Yeah, it's definitely, it definitely will be. It's a red district. They're sure, they're, they're sure far not going to to mix it in. As a matter of fact, my three neighboring towns are likely to get redistricted into District 1, uh, Wyndham, Salem, and Atkinson. And I grew up in Atkinson. Great. So first question, have you ever held um, governmental office before? Thank God, no. I'm not at fault for anything that's been done so far. You said you're not at fault? Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's a good way to put it. Um, again, a lot of people think experience is a good thing. Um, generally in government, I would say it's a good thing if you don't have a lot of experience. Like we have very experienced people like Biden and Bernie, but I don't consider that a, a positive attribute. You can only walk through the swamp for so long before you become a swamp creature or you start to sink in. So being it, that you have not been in uh, government or politics for your whole career, what have you done in your career if people want to know about your basic resume? Yeah, well, I, after high school, I enlisted in the United States Marine Corps. I've worked since I was 12 years old. I've studied politics and theory, philosophy, all sorts of stuff since I was about 12. I even used to call into Rush Limbaugh and occasionally argue with him uh, on basically intellectual purity in the constitution because I'm, I'm kind of a, that's kind of a big deal for me. I don't like uh, intellectually inconsistent arguments where like we defend stop and frisk, but then we decry being yanked out of our cars, praying in parking lots, socially distanced with masks on during a pandemic. And they're both the same violation of fourth amendment rights. Mm -hmm. So I think libertarian, Democrat, Republican, if we applied the constitution equally, that is where the majority of voters in this country, they actually reside is on the constitution. And if we applied that equally, most people would be completely fine. The problem is we don't apply it equally. And that's my issue. But aside of that, I joined the United States Marine Corps. I was a military policeman. I deployed Iraq. I was a saw gunner. And then after coming home, I was medically retired in 2011. I was stationed out of Camp Pendleton. And I was a homeless veteran for a while because there were no jobs, thanks to the Obama administration's dismal economic policies. And where was that? Where were you then? Uh, San Diego. So I EAS'd out of San Diego and my wife is from California. So I tried to keep her near her family for a little bit. And that was the worst decision staying in California in general is a bad place to raise a family. So I basically lived in a garage with my wife and my newborn son, and I went to college, and I studied uh, criminal justice, homeland security, uh, and anti-terrorism, psychology, and business. 
And then I went into private security where I did high threat protection, executive protection, stuff like that. And then eventually I moved back home as soon as I had the opportunity. And I did DOD security at Pease Air National Guard Base. So you're originally from New Hampshire? Huh? You're, you Was were born that? in New Hampshire? No, not born in New Hampshire. My parents, my dad is actually from New Hampshire. He graduated from Timberlane, as did my aunt and my uncles. And uh, it was, Timberlane's, a, it used to be a pretty damn good school, aside of our obvious wrestling credentials, which is spectacular. So I was actually born on our uh, regional air station uh, Air Force installation in Upper Hayford, England. And then I moved back to the States at about three years old. And I lived on Wright Patterson Air Force Base where my parents were still active duty. Awesome. So you moved back to New Hampshire a few years ago. And then are you still doing security or what are you doing now for work? Well, now I'm the Seacoast Regional Manager of a family company. So we run all the way from the top tip of New Hampshire, all the way down to West Springfield, Mass. This is our furthest Southern contract right now. And it's a commercial cleaning company. And we also have a residential floor care side carpets, so on and so forth. And we've serviced the region for about 20 years. Awesome. Very cool. So what made you want to run and when did you decide to run and why Congress being in DC as opposed to running for something in New Hampshire? Well, I think my voice, I know the most, I know people on the national stage and I worked with a lot of candidates in the last election, uh, talking to them, trying to feed strategy, speeches, messaging, stuff like that. Because as far as I'm concerned, if you have a message that is not tailored towards winning a voter and moving the ball forward is an unproductive message and is just red meat for the base and it's talking points. And while that's good for fundraising, it does not bring liberty. And to me, that's a problem. What were the specific issues that got you motivated? Was it taxes, gun rights, education? Honestly, it's a whole lot of all of it. There's a whole lot of all of it. It was taxes. It was regulations, job killing regulations. It was gun rights. These red flag laws were ridiculous. And then, uh, obviously the racialization of literally everything to where now math is racist and science is racist. And apparently my desk is racist mm -hmm. because it's made of wood and wood make is comes from trees and slaves were hung from trees. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what did they say recently? They just said the second amendment was racist. Um, yeah, literally everything. They're saying literally everything is racist now. Yep, they said the Second Amendment is racist due to its unequal application in the Black community, which sort of got me because I was like, hold up just a minute, because I, I do remember a certain party having an issue with the application of the Second Amendment in a particular community, somewhere around the same time that they were burning crosses in our yards. And dressing in white with tall pointy hats and white, yep. Yeah. But again, people like you and, and yeah. us are kind of pushing back on that as far as um, minorities getting access to firearms and training. So that's that's the optimistic part. 
Well, I'm actually writing a book right now on Maj Tor and uh, Sure Michael Singleton and mm -hmm. Olivia Rondo and a, and a whole bunch of other Black activists that are trying to expand gun rights within the Black community specifically. I mean, Maj Tor has got to be the most successful gun rights activist in the Black community in probably the last 40 years. And I and it I'd say that he's probably directly responsible for black women being the largest gun buying demographic in the country. Oh. Yeah, that is, I'd that say is. him and Sher Michael have done the most to increase that. And in particular, I believe that that's a good thing. Now, it strikes me as odd that at the same time that black people become the largest gun buying demographic in the country, the Democrats fight the hardest to get rid of our ability to own guns and increase gun laws at the fastest rate. So draw your own conclusions from that. Mm -hmm. So sticking with gun rights for the moment, and we're gonna move on to all the other issues. In Congress, should you be elected next year, what would be your ideal bills that you might propose or co-sponsor with someone like Thomas Massey as far as gun rights? What would you like to see happen on the federal level? I'd like to repeal the NFA. I'd like to repeal the NFA and I'd like re, uh, national reciprocity. Those are, those are two of my biggest issues. Um, I'd also like to get rid of the ATF's ability to make regulations that are punishable by fine or imprisonment, because as far as I'm concerned, executive agencies have no constitutional power to make legislation. And who would make Notice. legislation? Is there like a legislative uh, branch of government? Who would make legislation if not the ATF? Well, it should be the it should be Congress, but then again, they like to delegate their powers when they know that they can't get something passed. They they shove it off to the executive agencies, or they'll craft a bill that has widely broad language, and they'll hand it to the executive agencies, and then cronies in the executive agencies will expand the power by defining the language, which is a power that they they claim to have and they use on a regular basis to expand the legislation's actual practical application. Because these days, we don't have laws that directly, uh, most of the laws don't directly on their face infringe upon an individual. It's when they're put into practice where they start to infringe upon people's liberties and rights and their daily ability to live their lives. Mm -hmm. So you would absolutely, if you were elected to Congress, propose a bill to uh, either abolish or severely limit the, the ATF and their ability to create regulations and enforce them? Oh, yes. I'm a big fan of the ATF should be a an amusement park. Okay. Should be a place where I can go and hang out and sit in a barber's chair and smoke a cigar and drink a glass of bourbon and then in a couple of days come back and pick up my gun while I'm waiting for the government bureaucracy to finish my background check. Well, or ideally, there wouldn't be federal background checks anyway. Well, ideally, there wouldn't be. Un unfortunately, there there are, and it, it's it's really sad that we're that we're in a place where we have an an administration. What is interesting is Obama, for all of his bluster about the about guns, didn't pass a single gun law, but the ATF did the majority of the work for him. And that seems to work throughout all administrations as the ATF does the work that you can't actually get passed in Congress. Yep. And then Congress people don't have to be held accountable because they didn't do it. 
Exactly. It's kind of like how the president gets extra powers because Congress refuses to do their damn job. And then the we still get screwed. And people complain about the executive having too much power, but yet all these congressmen continue to abdicate their ability to vote and their ability to control the executive so that they don't have to be blamed and they can be reelected. So in the last few months, speaking to voters throughout New Hampshire, throughout CD1, what have been the things that they've talked about most as far as their biggest concerns? What are they most energetic about New Hampshire from what they tell you? Uh, top three issues are without a doubt uh, voting integrity, uh, making sure we have secure elections, uh, voter ID, and figuring out everything that went wrong, and not just the 2020 election, but everything that we did not solve after the Bush v. Gore election. Because let's face it, we got the guy that we wanted, so everyone decided to pack up their bags and go home, because why question it when you the end result? And my whole thing is the ends does not justify the means. And then the other one is critical race theory and the pushing of this woke education and indoctrination in our schools and our public schools. So I think the one of the biggest ways to impact that is school choice. School choice. And uh, I think the bill that we crafted in our state house, I think that uh, in particular here in New Hampshire is the best bill that I've seen nationwide. And I think it's the model for if we were going to do a federal bill, I think it's the model for what a federal bill should look like. And the third, I'd say, has got to be guns. So what would you like to see happen with the federal department? I should say the third has got to be tied between guns, pro-life and uh, the economy. And I believe the economy is fastly becoming the third of uh, the third issue. Uh, and I'd say the fourth would the fourth is definitely tied between guns, pro-life, and immigration, which affects the other two anyways. So yeah, and, and with the economy, with the inflation that we're going to see over the next few months or year, as soon as the, the market prices and the inflation, it's gonna hit us hard and we're gonna be in big trouble. Once those 10, 15 trillion extra dollars of uh, stimulus and printing and quantitative easing hits the market, we're all gonna be in pretty bad shape, maybe. Yeah, that's th this is one of my biggest issues. And conservatives used to claim to be the party of fiscal responsibility, and we have gotten away from that in recent years because we can justify a budget as long as everyone's happy about stepping all over our principles. It's like, I believe in limited government, and limited government means that we should not be spending ridiculous amounts of taxpayers' money to do stuff that the government was never designed to do in the first place. If we're going to say that the private market provides, then I believe you actually have to get in a private market and provide. So that's why I propose one of the largest deregulations and economic infrastructure plan, or not economic infrastructure, economic revitalization plan that has ever been proposed or that I believe we can actually get done. Yeah, And I mean, that is a 15% corporate, uh, corporate rate with a 12% corporate rate for every company relocating operations and manufacturing back here in the United States in an economically distressed area to undo literally decades of our politicians making it easy for their crony buddies to ship over jobs overseas to China. It sounds simple, like 
we can stimulate the economy not with more Keynesian crap of more spending and more inflation. We can stimulate the economy by doing the opposite, by do, decreasing taxes or having a tax holiday for a month. And the politicians yep. know this. They do it like once a year in Massachusetts, I believe. They have a yep. weekend with no taxes. How many others candidates or people in Congress are talking about stimulating the economy and bringing it back to life by eliminating taxes or lowering taxes or doing a, a holiday for some period of time? Is anyone else talking about this as the, the way to stimulate the economy? Seriously, literally the only people that I've talked to that have talked about it openly have been Rand Paul. I know Thomas Massey has spoken about it ad nauseum, and I, I got to say Byron Donald's in Florida. I spoke to him directly about my tax proposal and the elimination of all these regulations because Trump, when he made that, that uh, requirement that to institute a new regulation, you had to get rid of, I believe it was three for every one that well, you He said two for one, but they ended up yeah. doing like 17 for one. Yeah. He, he, it was absolutely insane. To be honest, I would really like it if a president would walk in with a list of regulations and just repeal them all at once and be like, look, you got 30 days to either codify them in law or they're gone entirely because the executive agencies don't have the ability to make law. And if there is going to be a law made, it needs to be made by Congress. Whether I agree with it or not, that's a, that's a practical way. That is how it is constitutionally supposed to happen. We need to stop abdicating authority and eroding the checks and balances in our government. It's so sad, but not a lot of people in Congress are talking about this. The fact that the legislative uh, branch of government, which is Congress, should be the ones making legislation, not yeah. unaccountable bureaucrats and regulatory agencies who are unaccountable. Yeah. The other side of my, my economic revitalization plan is changing the tax code for individuals. I want to cut the entire tax code down to 10% flat tax across the board for everyone. So if you're a billionaire, you pay 10% of a billion dollars. If you make 100 grand a year, you pay 10% of 100 grand. But I still take the reasonable approach and something that I picked up from Milton Friedman and... Uh, <laughs> You don't tax a guy who makes $10,000 a year at $1,000, uh, 10% of that $10,000. The guy's already poor. I want him to build and I want him to be able to rise faster. So what I do is I started the tax floor at $30,000 a year. Not to mention as a pragmatic purpose, that's what you can actually get people to vote on. And I think it, it is stupid to make intellectual proposals of bills that you know damn well that you're not going to get passed. Because literally you only see anybody do that in Congress when they're in a safe district and they know that they're not going to be replaced. It's kind of like uh, you'll see people do that with all sorts of uh, buzz issues on the right. When you're in a deep, deep, deep red district, you can propose these intellectual purity arguments where you don't have to compromise because you know you'll get credit just for proposing it when no one else did. In reality, you also know that you won't actually have to vote on it because it will never see the light of day. Yeah. So my whole thing was set the tax floor at $30,000 a year, which is literally just above the poverty line and in $10,000 deductible per adult, regardless of income. And then $3,000 deductible per child, maximum three children. Because my thing is in equal protection under the law. 
And if mm -hmm. everyone has a flat tax, you're all protected equally. If everyone has the exact same standard to meet, you're all protected equally. That's a very interesting uh, theory. I've never even heard like 14th Amendment equal protection concept <laughs> um, mentioned about taxes, because you're right. I'm taxed at a lot more, a lot higher rate, meaning I'm punished more by the government than those who make, you know, 50,000 a year. Yeah. Um, and that's not really equal protection. That we, We're going to have to ask our attorney about that. That might be an interesting case. Yeah, I, I believe that you shouldn't get taxed extra for being married and you shouldn't get extra benefits for being married. So if I'm married, that's $10,000 deductible for me, $10,000 deductible for my wife and 3000 for my kids. Literally filing jointly should just be a paperwork issue. It should just be an ease issue. None of this head of household, single, all of that. No, everyone has the same has the same tax code. It's easy to understand. It's easy to comply with. You shouldn't spend $1,000 trying to file your taxes each year so you can get a return. I also get rid of the return. And I require the passing of the Balanced Budget Act that Rand Paul put forward because we need to stop spending ourselves into a ridiculous deficit. Because right now, most people who have not studied economics in this country do not realize that our money is not tied, not just to, it's not tied to anything tangible. It's, it's fiat currency. And the best it is tied to is our economic position in the world. As long as we remain the world's top consumer, our economy is good. As soon as we stop consuming, and that happens for multiple reasons. So like when the economy is good for a long period of time and people start to wear off that initial spending spree that they go on where it's like, Oh, I'm going to buy a new car. I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to do renovations on the house. I'm going to go on a vacation, stop, buy new clothes, stuff like that. As soon as they stop buying luxury items and they get comfortable to that new money coming in, they start to look at, okay, how can I make this a continuous thing? How can I invest it, save it and so on and so forth. And that, decrease in economic opportunity, that decrease in consumerism and the look towards saving and investing starts to lower our economy. So we actually we actually lose a little bit on that and that actually negatively impacts our position as we, we start to not consume as much and people start to expect an economic downturn. Because when you're in a, a consumer-based uh, society, you can't ever steer away from consumerism. That's why the government keeps trying to give out stimulus. And it also happens when the economy's on a downturn and people are expecting to not have that money later, so they save it up. Would you support, I mean, I probably know the answer to this, but would you support maybe getting back to a real sound money based on something physical like gold or silver? Yes. Yes, most definitely. Something that is actually quantifiable. Something that when we look at our debt, when we look at our position in the world, it is stagnant based on some sort of standard that is not uh, rainbows and fairy tales. Although it's a pipe dream because the U.S. government knows their debt is denominated in U.S. dollars and U.S. dollars are extremely weak and getting weaker every day. And they love that because that means their debt is essentially being monetized. It's getting weaker every day. And if your debt is essentially shrinking because it's less value every day. They love that the dollar is getting weaker every day. And that's that race to the bottom with countries of devaluing their own currency, which sounds weird, but makes sense when you have national debt. So obviously yes. you'd be fighting against the entire US government 
So it would be the hardest uh, issue to overcome in the universe if you want to get back to sound money. Oh, yeah. And let, let's be honest. The entire world is doing this. There's not a country in the world that is not devaluing their, do their dollar and increasing inflation and spending and so on and so forth. Every single country in the world is racking up their deficit. So it would take an absolute economic collapse similar to what happened in Greece for the United States to, to basically go down the path that we see all other socialist countries go down. And that's not likely to happen because there are other countries who are striving as hard as they can to beat us to the bottom. So, I mean, there, there is a little, there's a little hope there, but not much hope. Not much hope because you can always expect a person in DC to spend 150% of any money that is not theirs. All right, moving on to education. What, how do you feel about the Federal Department of Education um, controlling policy for the states and how much autonomy should states have or localities have in determining education policy? I think the National Department of Education should basically be a statistic taking organization. If I were president for a day, presidents can't get rid of uh, executive agencies, but they can consolidate them. They can change their responsibilities. They can move things around. They can change their funding, so on and so forth. The best thing that we could do is change the Department of Education to a statistic taking organization and divvy up all the money that they get back to the respective state governments so that the states can run their localities and cities effectively. Because okay. I don't believe there's this basic principle. Every layer that you have between the taxpayer's dollar and the student, the more watered down that dollar gets by the time it gets to being spent on the student. And that also goes for every, every layer of bureaucracy you have between the taxpayer and the teachers, you also have that money getting watered down as it gets back to the teachers. So it affects teachers' salaries at the same time. You've watched schools spending increase at a ridiculous level, but you see teachers' pay has not increased at that same level, but you have seen administrative staff grow in each school in the country. School counselors, psychiatrists, um, school administrators in general increase at a drastic level, and their pay increases at a drastic level. And that is not a good relationship. If our tax dollars are to be going to anything in a public education system, it should be the teachers and the students. Now, I also believe school choice is one of the best ways that we could that we could fix this. I like the education freedom accounts. It was a big step in the right direction. I think that more money should follow the students where they go. And I have not heard a sound argument against them yet, seeing as specifically our state bill only takes about 33% of the cost to educate that student and it travels with the student. The other 66% stays in the district, which means you have smaller class sizes and more money being spent per student, which both have worked out to better or better educational outcomes in the long run. So- and it's limited to low earners. So it's not, um, the EFAs are not accessible to those who make more than a certain amount of money as well, which again, maybe an equal protection issue uh, for the, a couple who works hard and makes money and has kids, but their money can't follow their kids. It has to go to the government. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. There's a problem with the intellectual inconsistency of not applying the law equally, which we seem to 
do on a regular basis. Everyone has this idea that if you eat the rich, we all get richer. And that's not exactly how it works. You just end up with a dead, a bunch of dead rich men and we're all still equally as poor. So. All right, well, the biggest issue, I almost forgot about it, which it's nice to forget about it because it's, I never go more than a few minutes nowadays without thinking about it, is Corona fascism. You know, for the last year and a half or two years, we've had a pandemic raging throughout the United States, killing everyone. Um, that's why no one is alive anymore. Um, it's a shame that we're all dead now. You, you would clearly support a national mask mandate and national lockdowns for everyone in the United States, right? Hell no. As a matter of fact, I just reposted, uh, reposted a picture of a, a woman who is running, I'll read it to you right now, a woman who is running down in Florida for Congress, and she posted online uh, something of the sort of, we should be able to require that everyone get vaccinated or they lose their Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security benefits, VA benefits, VA uh, military pensions, Social Security, all of it. That's that dystopian, but that's realistic. That could happen. Yeah. Now, that's that's the sad part, is there are a lot of people that agreed with her when she said it. And I'm sitting here going, you know, normally in the conservative movement, we have a real bad problem of snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. My One of my big things is make the, all the intellectual purity arguments that you want and feel intellectually sound and go home at night and root for yourself in a mirror all you want about how superior you are than everyone else. But if you cannot win the election, you can accomplish absolutely nothing. And if we cannot start winning elections, which means crafting the right argument at the right time, the left is racing to outdo us. We're, we're pretty good at, you know, screwing up our own victories. But while they believe that they are so close to their fascist utopia that they desire so much, they are screaming from the rooftop all of their absolutely dismal dystopian plans. And it makes our job easy if we make the right arguments. The problem that we're having right now is rather than highlight the fact that they're making all these crazy arguments and just saying, hey, we're the reasonable ones. Look at what we're proposing. These are our solutions and talking based on solutions and using regular dialogue with people. We use talking points. And every time you use a talking point, you get five in return. Nobody, nobody's mind changes. You actually force people to retreat into their corners and take up a position. And it's very much like boxing. If I know you're just going to wail on me inaccurately, repeatedly, I can get into my corner, do a little bit of rope-a-dope, stay alive for a little bit. And then when you are so tired that you can't lift your arms and I come out of my corner and I beat the hell out of you. So as far as I'm concerned, the left is swinging their arms like and flailing like crazy. All we have to do is do a little bit of rope-a-dope for a little bit, be the reasonable ones, and come out swinging in 2022. Do you think voters and other candidates understand that we are very close to the CMS, again, the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services, not, not Congress, because we know Congress now doesn't pass laws. The agencies yep. do. Do people realize how close CMS and the VA, the VA is an agency, they can pass rules, how yep. close they are to mandating vaccinations and saying those who do, do not get vaccinated or other, you know, uh, medical procedures that the U.S. government and Biden support, 
can no longer be eligible for getting any benefits, and then a lot well, of people will be extremely in uh, bad shape. No, most most of the other candidates, and that, this goes for nationwide, most of the candidates are not aware of this because most of the candidates do not research things themselves. They leave it up to their staffers to research them. They leave it up to their campaign coordinators to research them. I dive endlessly into legislation, into reading, into looking at everything the left is doing. I sit silently in a bunch of their chat rooms so I can hear what they're thinking because you actually have to know what your enemy is thinking if you want to win the war. And we're in an ideological war right now. And if we don't win this ideological war, it is quickly going to become a real war. And I don't like to talk about wars because I believe that you're predicating something that may not ever happen and you're driving up anxiety. But the realistic uh, stance of what's going on is it will happen in the future. It's just a matter of when at this point and if we can stave it off for maybe another 50 to 100 years. Okay, so, so you're like everyone needs to start making productive arguments. As long as these campaign coordinators and these staffers keep feeding nothing but talking points to gin up the base, because let's face it, when campaigns bring in money, campaign coordinators and staffers get paid. And that's regardless of whether the campaign is successful or not. There is a whole business of campaign coordinators that make tons of money off of candidates that lose on a regular basis. Of course. And they just grift from candidate to candidate to candidate, giving really bad advice that makes a lot of fundraising dollars, gets people to open up their wallets, and then they leave. Mm -hmm. So you're elected, and a month later, Biden and maybe even Congress or maybe just CMS and the VA and the whole HHS declares a national emergency for toxic masculinity, because they've already, I'm sure, considered this. And they say that anyone who does not get all the vaccinations and all males who refuse to take um, estrogen and progesterone hormone injections weekly will no longer be eligible for any um, Medicaid, Medicare, any VA benefits, any government assistance of any kind. Um, and then, you know, like 60% of people in the United States are affected by this and either have to get serious medical therapy they don't want or they get no more government benefits. What would you do as a congressman? I would immediately file a lawsuit I'd immediately file a lawsuit and I'd advise everyone to fight back and not take it. Not take it, civil disobedience, law is only a law as long as people are willing to follow it. And it's no better exemplified than by the speed limit. Speed mm -hmm. limit 65 and we all drive 85. Yep, yeah, of course so, that depends whether it's enforced or not. But you know, you can't be optimistic that a judge would be on your side because if you know, we know how the government feels and we know most judges, yeah. they don't work for the government. So we know where they are ideologically as well. Well, most of them are, most of them want a career. So it's not even, it's not even a, I work for the government issue. It's a, I want a career. And if I want a career and I want to be reappointed, I have to make nice with both sides of the aisle, at least enough that I can get appointed by both sides of the aisle. It most, that's what I try to explain to people on a regular basis. There's very little actual conspiracy going on. And a lot of everyone acting in their own self-interest. And if you understand people's self-interest and you know where the money is going, you understand exactly why everything is happening. You also learn how you can fight against it. So I believe you file a lawsuit, you do the paperwork, you fight back in the culture. As we are seeing right now, there are places trying to, now they're not publicizing it because it wouldn't benefit them. 
but there are people who are refusing to wear the mask. There are businesses requiring it and people are just outright refusing. I've walked into probably three or four businesses all over the country since the end of the pandemic that require masks. Nobody was in the building wearing masks. Nobody. Everyone, and there was a woman going, hey, sir, you got to put on your mask. Yeah, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing it. I, I played your games long enough. I, I did what was required to be able to fly throughout the country. Now I'm done. If I'm not on a plane, which is the only time where I was like, eh, you know, you're on a plane during a pandemic. I'm rubbing elbows with a guy who's 300 pounds sitting next to me on a flight because I don't fly first class. I fly in the back of the plane with the normal people because I'm a normal guy. You know what? It might be a good idea for me to wear a mask. Hell, even on normal circumstance, it might be a good idea to wear a mask as long as I'm wearing it solely in this isolated position on this plane where I have to breathe in everybody else's air juices. Mm -hmm. So that is like a rational thing where I'm like, hey, this is a choice for me. I'll, I'll, I'll cooperate because this might actually be a good thing even long term to choose to wear a mask when you're on a plane full of sick people. Because I've been on a plane before when somebody coughs right next to me and I'm like, great, I got to I got to breathe this in for six hours. To but what extent? Any other any other situation? I'm like, it's not necessary. To what extent do you think the federal or state or local government has justification and the, the authority and the duty to protect the health and safety of the public, um, if, if at all? Honestly, before I would, at this point, I'm like, you know what? Show me a mass Ebola outbreak. Show me some, like a resurgence of the Black Plague. Show me something that is actually killing off like a ridiculous amount of people at a ridiculously high percentage. It is incredibly contagious to the point where it overwhelms even the burnoff rate. Like show me the data where the data matches up this, yes, this is a legitimate, legitimate pandemic. Not where you go to the numbers, not where you get rid of, you change the qualifications for what is an actual uh, pandemic, not where you say dies of the virus and dies with the virus mean the same thing. Because if I Superman my motorcycle down the highway at 125 miles an hour and I fall off and my head comes off my body, I didn't die because of COVID. I died because I decided to be an idiot at three o'clock in the morning going 125 miles an hour down the highway and my head came off. Trust the experts. Don't be anti-science now. You got to trust the experts. Otherwise, <laughs> we're I will get trust the experts disclaimer. as soon as they trust their own data. So, I mean, I think the good news is that if there were a real Black Plague scenario where 90% of people were dead, people would naturally, without laws being passed, they would naturally start social distancing and wearing masks. Yeah. So a law might not be necessary, right? Yeah, so, it wouldn't be necessary because people would understand. They'd be like, oh, wow, hey, you know, half the people on my block died overnight. Maybe it's a good, a good idea to put a mask on and quarantine myself and stock up on food. So I mean, most people have a level of common sense when they can see the problem is what is on the TV is a pale, pale shadow of reality. It, it's, it's like reality TV at this point where we all pretend it's reality, but it's not really reality. And it's meant to either put us in fear or make us feel really, really good about ourselves. So when your colleagues in Congress inevitably propose some legislation, 
to keep us all a lot safer and make us safer, healthier, live longer lives. You wouldn't support those bills. Like I could think of some great yeah. common sense bills right now. Like we can save lives and increase the life expectancy by banning smoking, banning alcohol, banning soda, sugar, cholesterol, cheeseburgers. You wouldn't support nope. any of those bills? No. They're just terrible. No, that, that's very Bloomberg-like. And Biden just wanted to do that with menthol cigarettes. So I don't understand that we trans kids can decide whether or not to get gender reassignment surgery at 12 years old, but they're not responsible enough to choose whether or not to buy menthol cigarettes. We have to change the rules governing advertising for Tide Pods because children were eating them, but yet they can make their own medic medical decisions now. But they can't make legal decisions about literally anything else. Maybe we should actually acknowledge that kids are kids and stop with the intellectual inconsistency and start treating kids like kids and understanding that as parents, we got to make better decisions for our kids so they don't figure out new and inventive ways to kill themselves, which is what young people do on a regular basis is figure out dumb things that they can do to harm themselves. And it's our job to stop them from carrying them out. Okay, so we only have a few minutes left, so it's time for me to get you in trouble, because you've been perfect so far. Now I have to get you in some trouble. Um, at what point, because you know I'm a pessimist, at what point with the federal government becoming centralized and authoritarian, communist, looking like closer, closer to North Korea every day now, at what point would you start supporting state independence movements, whether that be uh, Tenth Amendment, nullification of federal laws, or outright state independence, how bad would DC politics have to get before, if you're in Congress, you fly back to New Hampshire and help people, crazy radicals like me, in supporting maybe 10th Amendment nullification or state independence? How bad must it get? At, point, at the point where legislators are being locked up, at the point where dissidents are being jailed, and I don't mean like January 6th, I mean actual dissidents like you and me walking around that have YouTube channels and we start getting locked up, the government starts kicking in doors, no matter where in the country it is, they start kicking in doors and trying to take guns and lock people up for, for misinformation or trying to call out the National Guard or do what Obama did when he went to the UN and asked them if they would help him uh, take our guns away by force if necessary because the United States military, the generals said flat out that they wouldn't because they know that about 90% of the enlisted armed forces said flat out that they not only wouldn't, but that we would go home to our own states and we would defend our states. That's good to hear. So okay. that's at that point, that's that's the point where I, at the point where I believe there's literally no hope left is a point where I lock and load. But that point where I believe there is no hope left is I, I do like the non-aggression principle. So at the point where I see that aggression is inevitable against me or that it's already been brought, that's when I bring it back. Excellent. So any final words before we, before we sign off as far as making your, your case initially to the voters? I know you're going to have another year or so, but anything else you want to tell the voters for why they should choose you? I know I already have a few other friends who announced they're running for Congress as well. Uh, what, what else would you like to tell the voters that you haven't gotten to yet? You will not get the same by voting for the same, or you will not get different by voting for the same. The act of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So 
if you want to get rid of career politicians, stop voting for people who spend an entire career prepping to get into politics. Or stop voting for people who spend an entire career in politics who just want to increase their station and their wealth. If you want term limits, you got it. If you want somebody who refuses to sign an increase in taxes, you got it. If you want someone who refuses to sign gun legislation, you got it. You want someone who will actually fight and has no desire to be in D.C. any longer than absolutely necessary, you got it. Excellent. So check out my website, see my actual policy, because I did put actual policy on there at julian4nh.com. Perfect. Julian number four? Yep. NH.com. Okay, we'll put that description in the show notes and everything as well. Are you on the social medias as well? Yes, I am. I'm on Twitter, uh, Facebook, Gab, Parler, Clout Hub, Getter, and um, what's this other one? Frank Speech. Great. And so people can go to your website. And, and what do you need the most help with now if people do want to get involved and, and help your campaign? Uh, if you want to help right now, spread the word and fundraising, even if it's only a dollar. Because campaigns do run off of money. They are not free. I invested my own money in this. I wagered my own livelihood to save the country. So uh, it basically comes down to if you want liberty in D.C., you actually have to put money behind it. It takes 200,000 votes to win District 1. If 200,000 people donated $1 a week, we could fund literally any candidate anywhere in the country. And, and beat the lobbyists and beat the establishment. Every time you don't donate a dollar to somebody, that dollar is gonna come from a lobbyist. If people are not getting the donation, I don't wanna to go to lobbyists, I refuse to go lobbyists. Uh, they're absolutely reprehensible and they try to make you change your platform in order to get donations. So if you wanna fund a candidate, you want somebody in DC that you actually believe in, donate a dollar. Everyone can afford a dollar. You bought a cup of coffee this week. You bought a cheeseburger. You bought a pack of cigarettes. You bought a six pack of beer. Put down a six pack of beer and wager that money on liberty and freedom. Excellent. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for your time and good luck on the campaign. And I'm sure we'll have you back at some point within the next few months, most likely. All right. See you thank soon. You. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon.